Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As his plane circled the recently liberated Dachau concentration camp, Dr. Leo Alexander could see the former inmates cheering and waving below. They had good reason to cheer. American planes often brought food for the prisoners, like corned beef and potato salad. The planes also brought doctors in to tend to the sick. But Dr. Alexander had not come on a healing mission. Quite the opposite. It was exactly 75 years ago, May 1945, and he was there to tear the scab off a Nazi cover-up and expose some of the worst atrocities of World War II horrific medical experiments on concentration camp prisoners. Up to that point, the Allies had heard rumors about such research, but no one could confirm anything. That task fell to Alexander, a chubby, balding, bespectacled army psychiatrist who'd been expelled from Nazi Germany years before. For unknown reasons, the army gave Alexander just six weeks to investigate the atrocities, from mid-May through the end of June. And in many ways, it was a no-win assignment. If he failed in his mission, unprecedented crimes might remain hidden forever. If he succeeded, well, it was almost worse. Because then he and the rest of the world would have to live with the knowledge of the cruelties that one human being can visit upon another. Either way, as his plane passed Dachau and descended toward Munich, Alexander knew that the proof he needed to expose the Nazis was somewhere on the ground below. Hi, I'm Sam Keen, and you're listening to The Disappearing Spoon a topsy-turvy, sciency history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Alexander opened his investigation into the atrocities by interviewing Nazi scientists near Munich about hypothermia. During the war, Germany had lost thousands of pilots and sailors in the cold seas of the North Atlantic. So researchers had reportedly been submerging inmates at Dachau in ice water and chilling them nearly to death. The goal was both to study hypothermia and to test new methods of reviving people. But when Alexander tried to pin the scientists down, they proved evasive. They admitted to submerging guinea pigs in ice water, and they prattled on and on about all they'd learned from such work. But whenever Alexander asked about experiments on humans, the Germans clammed up and swore that they didn't know of any. One scientist, however, did concede to running experiments on large animals, and this piqued Alexander's interest, because he'd recently seen a strange watercolor painting in a nearby institute. 
The painting showed equipment for submerging pigs in ice water. Now, given their size and lack of fur, pigs were a good substitute for human beings in this research. But Alexander knew that if you could submerge pigs, you could also submerge people. He insisted on seeing this equipment for himself. But the scientist refused. That's impossible, he said. Alexander asked why. Because the equipment's at another institute, very far away. Alexander was getting annoyed. How far, he asked. Six miles. That's not too far by Jeep, Alexander said. We're going. When they arrived at the Institute, scientists there tried to distract Alexander with more stories about submerging rodents. Irritated with their games, Alexander finally cut them off. Where was the pig equipment? The Germans finally led him outside and showed him two cracked wooden tubs behind a stable. This was all that remained, they said. To Alexander, the contrast was telling. The equipment for submerging rodents had been preserved. But the bigger equipment, equipment they'd painted pictures of, they were so proud of it, had all been destroyed. Anything capable of holding a human being was missing. This and other clues reinforced Alexander's suspicions that the Nazis were hiding something. But with no hard evidence, he had to be cagey. If he spooked the Germans, they might destroy more evidence. So he pretended to be satisfied with their answers and backed off. Then, having exhausted his leads around Munich, he hopped back in his jeep and began making his way hundreds of miles north. He had more scientists to interview in the town of Göttingen. It was already early June. He had just one month left, and he'd picked up nothing so far but a bad feeling. Given Alexander's bittersweet memories of Germany, the journey through the bombed-out Reich must have been melancholy. He was born in Vienna in 1905 to a well-to-do Jewish family, and he had an idyllic childhood. The Alexander family estate had peacocks running around on the lawn. And Sigmund Freud and Gustav Mahler were regular guests at his home. As a young man, Alexander followed his father into medicine, and he soon won prestigious jobs in Berlin and Frankfurt. His career was taking off. And then it all came crashing down. In 1932, His father was murdered in the street by a former mental patient, a senseless and random act. A few months later, the Nazi party seized power in Germany and began purging Jews from government posts, including doctors. Lucky for him, Alexander was on sabbatical in China when the purge began. But he was now stateless, and he sailed to the United States to start over. He settled near Boston and began working at a psychiatric ward. By the late 1930s, he was teaching neurology at Harvard Medical School. When World War II erupted, he joined the army and treated soldiers for shell shock in England. And after Germany's defeat, he expected to return to Massachusetts. But he was suddenly plucked out of the ranks by Allied officials. Given his background, he was considered the perfect person to expose Nazi medical atrocities. So far, though, Alexander's mission had stalled. 
and if not for a few lucky breaks and his dogged persistence, the Nazi cover-up would have succeeded. The first lucky break occurred on the road to Göttingen. Alexander stopped by a military base for dinner one night, and he happened to sit down next to an army chaplain in the mess tent. Hey, Doc, let me ask you something. The chaplain mentioned that he'd recently heard a radio broadcast about some medical experiments at Dachau, including reports of people being held down in tubs of ice water. Alexander was stunned. It sounded eerily similar to the experiments on pigs. But he needed something firmer. He needed the name of the doctor in charge. Did the broadcast mention any names, he asked. Yeah, the chaplain said. Who? I don't remember, the chaplain admitted. Alexander pushed, but the chaplain simply couldn't recall. It was another dead end. Or at least it would have been. But Alexander played this card for all it was worth when he arrived in Göttingen and started interrogating scientists. I know all about the Dachau broadcast, he said. Who was experimenting on humans there? Suddenly, a name popped up. Zygmunt Rascher. Rascher was an Air Force doctor and a nasty piece of work. Cruel, vain, unremorseful. In one interview, Alexander heard about Rascher getting drunk at a conference and taunting another scientist. That scientist had written a book called Human Physiology, but his data came from research on rodents, and Rascher got right in his face. <laughs> Human physiology. I am the only one in this whole crowd who knows human physiology, because I experiment on humans. He was actually bragging about it. Rasher was the first real lead Alexander had, and a tiny clue about him soon broke things wide open. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up? and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture. No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Rasher was an Air Force doctor. But one interview subject slipped up and mentioned that Rasher also did research for the SS, 
the Nazi security agency. Now, this probably seemed like small beer, bureaucratic minutiae. Except the very next day, Alexander heard something intriguing. The Allies had recently broken into a cave in Austria, and inside that cave, they'd found the secret archives of Heinrich Himmler, longtime head of the SS. So, determined to hunt down every lead, Alexander drove hundreds of miles to Heidelberg, where the archives had been moved. Only to realize, when he got there, that the archives were a total mess. Himmler turned out to be a pack rat, obsessively preserving every scrap of paper that passed through his hands. Most of them were marked up with his signature green pencil. How would they ever find anything? No doubt it was another dead end. But they started digging. And around June 18th, Alexander broke the seal on a packet of papers blandly named Case Number 707. He would later compare what he discovered inside to a dark German fairy tale, a land where, quote, the Nazis had taken special pains in making practically every nightmare come true. Case number 707 confirmed that Rascher was every bit as nasty as his colleagues claimed. He'd long wanted to experiment on human beings, but Air Force officials wouldn't let him. So Rascher turned to the SS. Rascher's wife, Nini, a former SS secretary, actually had close ties to Heinrich Himmler. So much so that Himmler allegedly fathered the Rascher's first child. Despite this humiliation, Rascher sucked up to Himmler in order to win permission for his research on humans. And amid Himmler's papers, Alexander found reports outlining all that Rascher had done at Dachau. It was a ghastly picture. Hundreds had died overall, dozens while being held down in ice water, often while naked. Others were deliberately wounded with blades or injected with pus or put into low-pressure chambers until the blood vessels in their brains burst. Now, I understand that hearing about these atrocities isn't for everyone, but I do think it's important to confront the truth. So if you are interested in knowing more, I've made a spin-off episode available at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. More importantly, the spin-off episode explores the ethical dilemmas that modern doctors face with this research, because some of this Nazi data could actually help save lives today. So, should modern doctors ignore the data, given its tainted origins? Or should they use the data to save lives? It's not an easy choice. Visit patreon.com slash disappearing spoon to hear more. But Dr. Alexander at least now had hard evidence of atrocities. And, running out of time, he hurried back south again to confront some of the scientists he'd interviewed before, the ones who'd lied to him. This time, they didn't get away with it. Confronted with hard evidence, they had no choice but to confess what they knew, information that didn't appear elsewhere. In Munich, he also tracked down former inmates at Dachau, gathering more clues. Based on what they told him, he raced back to the document center to dig further. All in all, he put in hundreds upon hundreds of miles, rushing back and forth those last two weeks, piecing together what had happened in Dachau. 
Without Alexander's dogged detective work, years might have passed before the archive records of the atrocities came to light. Crucial witnesses might have died in the meantime, and their dreadful secrets would have died with them. At the end of June, Alexander was summoned back to London to summarize his findings on Nazi atrocities. He ended up typing out 1,500 pages. Then he submitted those documents to help prosecute war criminals at the Nuremberg Doctors' Trial in 1946. Now, the doctors' trial was frustrating on some level. Despite Alexander's reports, two of the doctors he exposed were acquitted in Nuremberg, and others never faced trial at all. Among other things, the defense lawyers pointed out that no international code of conduct governed scientific research at that time. What's more, the experiments were technically legal under German law. That's because, unlike monkeys, dogs, and horses, the Third Reich did not protect Jews and prisoners when it came to medical research. However, several top Nazi doctors were convicted and hanged at Nuremberg. And probably the worst offender, Sigmund Rascher, had already faced justice, albeit in a twisted way. Because he and his wife Nini had already been executed by Heinrich Himmler. And to learn why Himmler turned on Rascher and the fraudulent scientific scheme that cost Rascher his life, you can listen to the spin-off bonus episode for this podcast. Visit patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. Suffice it to say that Rascher's fraud angered Himmler, and Himmler no longer trusted him. Himmler also knew that Germany was losing the war and he wanted to destroy all evidence of the barbaric medical experiments. And it almost worked. Imagine a world where murderous Nazi doctors got away with everything, their atrocities unexposed, their reputations unscathed. It seems outrageous, yet this could have happened if not for Alexander. Frankly, Alexander was an unlikely military hero, chubby and nearsighted and bald. And the work had not been glamorous, driving hundreds of miles on bombed-out roads, scrounging up clues from paintings, slogging through mountains of dreary bureaucratic papers. But without him, some of the greatest crimes in modern history might never have come to light. And however frustrating it is that certain Nazi doctors escaped punishment at the Nuremberg trial, Alexander did ensure they wouldn't escape the judgment of history. Equally important, Alexander helped curb future abuse. Again, several Germans at the Nuremberg trial argued that what they'd done wasn't illegal, in part because no international codes governed medical experiments at that time. This gap disturbed Alexander. So he submitted a memo to Allied prosecutors outlining several principles behind ethically sound medical research, especially patient consent. That memo formed the basis of the now-famous Nuremberg Code that governs work on human subjects across the globe. After the trial, Alexander returned to Boston to resume his medical practice. But the macabre continued to haunt him. He helped arrange treatment for 40 Polish prisoners who'd been crippled by Joseph Mengele's medical experiments. And in the 1960s, he helped the police solve the infamous Boston Strangler serial killer case. He died of cancer in 1985. 
Post-war colleagues knew Alexander best for his work on neurological ailments, like multiple sclerosis. But there's no question that his most enduring contribution to medicine was the Nuremberg Code, a milestone in the history of ethics. Yet, few people today know of the man behind the code, much less the story of how his frustration in fighting the Nazis inspired it. But if Alexander couldn't ensure justice in his own time, he at least helped secure the rights of those who came later. To learn more, visit samkeen.com slash podcast. There, you can find more incredible stories from my books or learn how to book me as a speaker at your school or event. Also, you can ask questions for me to answer on air or suggest stories for future episodes. Finally, you can learn how to find transcripts, bonus episodes, and signed goodies there by becoming an official supporter. And if you like this podcast, please do your part to keep it alive by becoming a patron through samkeen.com slash podcast. I'm listener supported. Spread the word to others as well, both online and in person. Word of mouth means a lot. Also, subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places and leave a five-star review. Thanks for listening to The Disappearing Spoon.